0: You're listening to Coding Blocks, episode 199. Subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast
1: app, and leave us a review if you can. And uh, we got a website, codingblocks.net, where you can find show notes,
0: examples, discussion, and a whole lot more. Yep, send your feedback, questions, and comments, or, no, to no, two comments, at codingblocks.net, and follow us on Twitter, at codingblocks. This is our first time doing this. Yep. And uh, we, we got a website. Oh, crap, I think I'm repeating. Uh, anyway, we got social
1: links at the top of the page. This is what happens when we don't have uh, Outlaw. So I'm Joe Zach, though. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm Alan Underwood. And uh, so today, uh, no Outlaw. So uh, we're just going to kick back, take it easy, and uh, talk about a few different things. So each one of us uh, grabbed a couple uh, topics to bring to the table today, and we're just going to see how it goes. But first, a little bit of news.
0: Yep, we we actually got a couple of reviews this time. Uh, we got one from Ryan Barger on iTunes. Uh, thank you very much for that. And we got one from an Amazon customer over in Audible in the UK. And fortunately, he said he was going to leave a three or four star review uh, based off Joe's lovely um, selling capabilities in the previous episodes. But fortunately, he left a five. So, All right. Thank you. Yes, we very much appreciate that for, for both of you it took time to do it.
1: Yeah, appreciate that. And Hey, guess what? Uh you had fire warning. Uh, you know, gave it a little uh, tremors, little pre- some premonitions <laughs> for this episode. But the January link for the Coding Blocks third annual uh, game jam is now live. You can go sign up right now. The dates are January twentieth to twenty third. Let's make a game. Seriously, you don't have to have you know three days off, whatever, to uh, go make a game. You can do whatever you got time for. Do whatever you want. Make a text game. Uh, try something new. Um, you know. A, Try something old. I don't know. Just uh, sign up. Uh, have fun. We'll have a link in there. And also, uh, i got a couple links to uh, like videos from past years just so you can see all the cool stuff uh, that you'll be um, you know, partaking in and being a part of. And, uh, yeah. And, oh, by the way, I set up a, a friendly link here. So you can go to codingbox.net slash cbjam. And it'll take you right to that link. So, of course, we'll have the link in the show notes. But if you also just remember cbjam, it's the hashtag. And also codingbox.net slash cbjam.
0: Killer! Hey, and for those interested, January twentieth through the twenty third is a Friday through a Monday, so you would actually have some weekend time there to mess with it. So, like he said, you know, even if you've never done it before, like tried to create a game or anything, it might just be a fun experience. So, give it a shot. Um. All right. So, with with additional news, uh, we we have established, I think, both Joe and I's love of Costco, all things Costco, yes. on this show. Well, I have more love for it, and and this might be a little bit late considering black friday just passed by and a lot of people go buy appliances on black friday because you get crazy good deals but i at least wanted to drop this out there there is a really good reason actually several good reasons to buy appliances from costco one is the return policy yeah. is unreal like if you get if you were to buy a washer and dryer you have a 90 day return period um now I, I can't remember exactly what Home Depot and Best Buy and those were, but to put it into perspective, I believe that Home Depot was 48 hours. I think that Best Buy is like 14 days. So, so you're talking about really small windows compared to the other. Um, on top of that, a couple other reasons that that are just absolutely amazing is if you were to buy a washer and dryer from Home Depot or Best Buy or wherever. You also have to buy the hookups. So, you have to buy your water line hookups. You have to buy your gas line hookup. You have to buy your um, dryer vent and all that kind of stuff. So, with Costco, it's all included. And Costco will do Holloway for free. So, like, it's just when I was searching for things, it, it was unfortunate that it worked out like this. But I actually narrowed what I needed to get to what Costco had Ooh. for that reason.
1: I did that with TVs. I was like, let's see what Costco's got. It's going to be one of these.
0: Yeah. Yeah. They threw in an extra year of, uh, of warranty on the thing too. So it's like, it's like a no brainer. So my Costco love has grown even more over the holiday season. Um, I thought I'd share and maybe, you know, anybody that's looking to, to do something like that, I would highly recommend looking into it. Yeah, you know, oh. I bought something
1: from Google's online store once. And uh, it was non-turnable by the time I opened it. <laughs>
0: Fifteen oh, minutes or something. It's so ridiculous, man. Yeah, it's it's frustrating as heck. So oh, one more thing about out. Costco. Yeah, I tell you, uh, I haven't told you this.
1: Uh, they made my Costco bigger. Ooh, I did didn't they, know they could do that. How did they do that? They took away some of the parking lot, which you know, risky move on their part because that thing is a madhouse. <laughs> but yeah, they they uh, they built more Costco onto my Costco. It's amazing. What did they add to it? They just made everything a little bit bigger. Oh, that's amazing. They, m- they, they moved the veggies
0: over a little bit and they made it bigger. And then now they have like a whole dairy section. That's unreal, man. Oh, so check it out. I'm actually in between two Costco's, like almost equidistant from that's the one that you used to live by and another one that's out out near my house. There is something very interesting. If you buy your gas at Costco, make sure you look to see who has the best price. The one that's by your old house Whoa. is like 40 cents cheaper than the one that is in the opposite direction. Wow. Makes cents. no sense. Yeah, man. Like it, it was significant, especially for my gas hog. So, so yeah, I digress. We need to create a podcast for, for Costco. Um, <laughs> yeah. I, I don't know if we get any sponsors or anything. There's only <laughs> one. Yeah. Um, and then, and then one other thing I wanted to share. So I, I didn't ask, uh, the person that shared this with me if, uh, if I could mention his name, so I won't, but there was an interesting article that came out about Amazon, potentially replacing a lot of their HR with AI-driven software. Um, we'll have a link to the Vox article here, but it's really interesting. Basically, taking a look at the profiles of the people that have been working at the company for a while and what their resumes look like and what their who knows what else, like their LinkedIn profiles or whatever. Like, I don't know what the input parameters to this thing would be, but they feel like they've fairly well nailed down who would be somebody that would work out in the long term? Wow. Just by comparing who's there and the applicant pool out there. So that's some Gattaca stuff right there. Yeah, it's crazy, man. So uh yeah. All right. Wow. With that, let's uh let's go ahead and jump in. What's what's your uh what's your first topic?
1: All right, yeah. So um I uh you know, I always think about like junior developers and like what it takes to bring them on and uh and it's like, if you're on Twitter, if you're on Hacker News, if you're on Reddit, if you're anywhere in the tech scene, you are just inundated in social media with like ads or tweets or, or whatever, basically targeting people that are trying to get into coding, like how to get that first year experience. Like if you're on um, Dev2, remember that website uh, Dev2 or you know Medium or any of these, Hacker Noon. I mean, every day you're going to see like how to get your first job as a developer, like tons of those. But I was thinking you never see or you don't see a lot of articles about how to hire junior developers, like how to find ones that are going to be decent, how to actually kind of get people in there and support them. so I did a couple, uh, did a couple Googles and I couldn't really find a lot. So I thought it might be interesting to talk about like, what do you think uh, either the problem is, or what do you think it takes to to be able to hire and support junior developers?
0: Hmm, That's interesting. I mean, we've, We've tried to do that before at at various companies we've been with. And if you don't have the infrastructure in place, like you don't have um, a good mentorship program in place for that, that, that makes it almost a non-starter, right? Like who's going to be spending the time doing this? What are they going to be working on? What, um, what are the metrics? What are the, the things that you're going to measure their progress by Like it's, you really have to be set up for it,
1: right? Yep. Yeah, totally. I think um, you know. Well, me personally, like when I think about like maybe I should, you know, we've got a rec open. Maybe I should argue that we should lower the, the um, you know level down and try to hire someone new. And I don't want to argue for that because I think immediately, oh, this is just taking more of my time, and I already don't have time. Right. And so th- that's what I always think back. And I think you know, well, maybe maybe that's anti-parent. Maybe that's a problem on my side that I don't feel like I've got the time to invest in somebody that's going to pay dividends. So, you know, I don't know, but then then you, you worry like how many developers, how many junior developers work somewhere one year and then they go somewhere else and get like triple the pay as like a mid junior role, you know?
0: Yeah. Well, that's, that's sort of the problem too, right? Like I think we've talked about like, um, if you're in college going and doing an internship somewhere, right? I, I believe, or I want to believe that those companies try and get somebody in, see if they're good, see if they're advancing, you know, uh, fairly quickly and they're doing well at the tasks are given. And then hopefully after they're done with their college degree or whatever, they get offered a, a reasonable competitive salary coming out. But like you said, especially, especially in the tech scene, it doesn't seem like there's, there's loyalty. Like, you know, if you worked in the car industry for years, you might've worked for GM for 40 years, right? And then you retire there. That doesn't really seem to exist in our space
1: yeah, pensions are gone. Like there used to be these incentives for where you to stay at a company for a long time, and you see get a watch for ten years. you know, like that kind of stuff doesn't happen anymore. The average person stays
0: three three years at a job, yeah, at least yeah in
1: the tech tech world
0: yeah, it's tough and and it's hard too because I think part of that and, and I mean, I don't guess this is just junior developer type stuff, but I guess it's as you're going up the ranks regardless a lot of times it's easier to hop to another place and get that promotion you're looking for than it is to get promoted from within. Right. Because totally. companies have already set their budgets for, for their year. Right. And, and going somewhere else, you know, they have open budgets, they have open rights for whatever. And, and internally they may not. And again, it's like you said, I mean, it, it's tough. If you get a good junior developer, it's an amazing experience. Um, because you can you can sort of see that that glow that that light going and and they're excited and they're thirsty to to learn more and do more the problem is when you get one that isn't great yeah then it feels like a ball that's just dragging you to the bottom of the sea right and that's i mean you could say that about any developer but especially with with junior level developers it can be way more difficult because if they don't have the background knowledge on some things, like you, you could spend days just explaining why you even look at doing something, you know?
1: Yeah. And if I hire a, if we hire a senior developer, right. I'm, I'm able to give them some of my responsibilities, right. If I, and, and you know, within a couple months, you know, I expect them to be able to kind of like be taking stuff off my plate. Junior developer. I kind of expect the awesome opposite, at least for a long time, like several months, maybe years before it's actually saving me time. And people, you know, job hopping. So, you know, I don't mean to make it sound like that's an excuse for me not wanting to hire junior developers. You know, I don't like, I haven't really had, you know, no one's really asked me, like, should we hire junior developers or not? So I don't really have that uh, question in practice. But uh, if I just try to think like what it is that I worry about when hiring developers and kind of project that out to other organizations, that's the only thing I can really think about.
0: Yeah. I mean, there is a super positive side there. Like I said, you can get somebody that's, you know, excited, they are, they'll work themselves to the bone. And I'm not saying that they should, but they will because they just love it so much. Like the people that, that really love to program, like, I mean, Jay Z, we, we've talked about it in your spare time. You'll be playing video games. And then right after that, you'll be looking into some other technology, right? And, and it's that desire, that thirst. If you can get it when somebody's fairly new to it and you can sort of help shape how they need to look at things going forward, you can help them skip several years yeah. of, of mistakes or, or just hard learning and, and get it done quickly and fast track them to being an awesome, you know, uh, regular dev or senior dev. So yeah. it, it can be an amazing experience, but you do, I think you have to be set up for it.
1: Yeah. And so I, what I was thinking, uh, Uh, Hey, you out there in uh, podcast listening land, if you have any tips, if you have any articles, if you had anything that you've seen other orgs do or that you've tried that worked out well for you, uh, let us know, because I think that would be really important to share. And I think that seems to me like it should be equally as important as telling people how to get that first job. as like how to tell people how to (laughs) give people that first job. Yeah, totally. I like it. Oh, yeah. And uh, I got another topic here. Uh, Similar vein. Uh, how long do you need to stay at a job? Like I mentioned, you know, part of my fear with junior developers so is you invest a bunch of time and then they take off after a year and they get 25% more pay. Uh, and I, I don't know if that's actually the number, but I wouldn't be surprised at all to hear that people with zero experience get, you know, one rate, and people with one year experience can double it. You know, that would not surprise me at all. But uh, I know there's a lot of fear around, or at least a lot of talk around having like a job hopper resume. So if you see a resume where someone's had 17 jobs in the last uh, 10 years, like unless they're a contractor, like that might set off some alarm bell alarm bell. So I was kind of wondering, like, what do you think the line is? Like how long should you stay at a
0: job? Man, that's, that's really interesting. So I can tell you from people that I've worked in the worked with in the past, there were people that if they were looking at resumes and somebody had had more than two jobs in, in a year, they basically just threw the resume away. Yeah, and I mean, for better or for worse, I, I, I've known people that do job hop, and they're very successful, and they're they're very good at what they do. Um, I, I don't know, man. This one's tough. I'd say, w- would you agree that you're usually not hyper productive at a job till you've been there at least like three months? Maybe. Oh yeah. So, so somewhere in that hyper productive like 6 months maybe <laughs> okay yeah hyper productive so being productive to where you feel like you're actually accomplishing things probably 3 months so hyper probably 6 and so to even really get a good footprint at being at a place i'd say you have to be there at least a year i'd say 1 to 2 years at least in my mind seeing somebody at a place that long usually is a good sign that that they're getting along with people, they know what they're doing, and and life is good. Because honestly, the the getting along with teammates and all that is is just as important as as the work that they can put out, right?
1: Oh, tell totally. I was thinking a big part of it is like the story you have to tell. If you, assuming you get into an interview with that kind of resume, is like if you go in there and say like, "Well, I left this place because it was toxic, and I left the place before that because it was toxic, and the place before that, and suddenly, you know, I mean, that's just like." you know, goodbye. See, ya. like, obviously this is more than just the jobs, right? Uh, but if you can say, well, I worked at this place, one place for one year or two years, and uh, you know, I can show that I've learned to kind of get along with people and make p- place. But then, you know, the next place, uh, got, um, you know, had big layoffs and the place after that, um, you know, something else happened like, you know, and I left or I got a new opportunity or whatever. I think if you can kind of spin it in a positive way so that each change looks like it was like, something you know good or whatever that you something good came out of it for you then i think that's good and like you just have to be really careful with that in the interview like how you phrase it but that means that assumes that you get into the the interview so i was thinking about like what do you do about you know if you do have like kind of a job hopping resume and you want to you really want to get a job like
0: what do you do about it that's that's interesting i mean i guess one of the one of the things that would at least keep my interest for somebody that does have a job hopping resume is when I asked them, Hey, why, why have you had so many positions in the past, you know, two years or, or whatever um, their answer would weigh heavily on, on my, on my thinking at that point. Right. Like if somebody said, Hey, I, you know, I, I took this job because I thought I was going to be doing heavy cloud services and it turned out it wasn't right. And I went to this one and they said it was going to be that, and it wasn't then then I could sort of I can sort of get behind that because I know I've seen it happen where people get sold a bill of goods when they come into a company right like hey you're going to be writing the next um CMS and it turns out all you're doing is um styling things all day right and so I I can totally get it but it, it definitely sends off warning flares a little bit you know yeah I definitely like the idea of uh, at least
1: having Are are, you know, trying to get, you know, trying really hard to get at least one job where you've got a couple years on there. And obviously if this is your first job, you know, that's a a tougher thing, but, uh, just so you can kind of have that experience and be able to relate to kind of having to live with uh, the bugs that you've written and having to learn to get along with people like long-term just so it doesn't look so, so bad. But I I also think, um, if I'm going to be interviewing somewhere, like, I'm going to try to find an in somewhere where I know somebody that can be a referral or some other way. You know, ideally, that, that someone can take my resume and say, like, this is his resume. You know, we know what it looks like. There's a lot of jobs in here. But the reason is because, you know, they're, they're all good reasons. So just, you know, let him in that door. And so that, that would be my way of kind of getting around that, uh, that resume problem.
0: Hey, so it's interesting what you said. Like, your, your initial question was, how long do you need to stay at a job? Yeah. Um. But you said that as long as somebody shows that they were able to stay at a job or maybe a couple of jobs for a decent period of time, then it wouldn't bother you as much. So is it is it you feel like they need to show that they can be established somewhere at least once or twice? And then and then you're a little bit more open to whatever it is. Or do you think there is a time period that that people should stay at a place before moving on?
1: Yeah, that's, yeah. That's when you put it like that, it's like uh, the, what I'm tr- really trying to get after, and like what I'm trying to watch out for is basically uh, the personality problems. Right. Which is, you know, r- <laughs> I'm waving the red flag on myself because that's, you know, there's all sorts of problems with trying to kind of ferret out people based on the personality. But you know, ultimately, it is really important that you're able to get along with the team. And that the people that you hire are able to to get along and get you know work done and be productive with uh, various other different personalities. And so, on one hand. I am trying to look out for personality problems. On the other hand, I think you're not allowed to (laughs) look out for personality problems. You know, like you don't want to say you're hiring for a culture fit because that's how you end up with a monoculture, which is bad. So I I really don't know what the answer is, but Hey, I guess uh, if you have any ideas, (laughs) let's know in the comments.
0: (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny though. Like I think what you said is important. Like you don't want to get stuck with a monoculture, meaning that, you know, it's just everybody with the same mindset and all that. However, there is a thing to be said for people who can communicate well and are personable and all that, right? Like you don't want to be clashing and butting heads with everybody every day of the week. Right. So, um, I don't know that that's, I mean, if, if you're going to be hired for a waiter or waitress at a, at a restaurant or something like that, like they're not going to hire somebody that comes in being rude and brash to everybody. Right. Like, so there's that, um, But, but I agree. I think I I want, I want somebody who's at least passionate about what they're doing. And I think you can tell that a lot of times, even in an interview, even if they're a job hopper. Um, and, and nowadays for, for better or for worse, you can see most of this stuff online, right? Like you can look at somebody's Facebook profile, you can look at their LinkedIn, their Twitter, all this kind of stuff. And you can sort of get an idea of, Hey, is this person, you know, rubbing the entire internet wrong? Are they, or, yeah. or are they just, you know, Hey, they're just out there being a regular person. Right. And, you know, <laughs> I've said it before on this podcast, I'll say it again, be careful what you're putting out into the, uh, into totally. the digital world. Right.
1: Yeah. It's funny. Though, like, um, I think companies like the big companies like Microsoft and Amazon and Google and stuff like in a way they're almost like trying to cut off that personality with an interview process. It's like, they almost like, don't want you to go Google the person and see what their Twitter's like. Cause they don't want it to bias your opinion on the interview. You Know, but uh, on the other hand, like, I want to know that someone's gonna be able to put up with my crap,
0: <laughs> uh, <laughs> whatever, man. Joe, Joe's about the most um, uh, nice guy that, that anybody's ever worked with. I don't know, I've only ever heard him get upset maybe twice <laughs> the years that we've all worked together, so you know, yeah. but you know, uh, I, I just imagine like if uh, if
1: I was interviewing someone, I'm like, so I see you got three jobs in two years, like, what happened there? And you're like, oh, all three of them were just. Really chaotic. I'm like, oh crap! Well, this isn't <laughs> going to go well.
0: <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Yeah, well, well, let's save I'm, us both some time. And, uh, yeah, I don't guess you want to be here then. Yeah, uh, awesome. All right, got one
1: more for you. So uh, this one, um, buddy of ours, uh, Chris, recommended a podcast uh, a couple weeks ago. And I checked it out, and I thought it was really good. This is a show that I hadn't subscribed to before, uh, called. Uh, that's, um, the notes, the show notes are wrong here. I, (laughs) the link is right. And the title is wrong. Uh, the name of the podcast is the analytics engineering podcast. And it's podcast all about, uh, you know, analytics. So big data, kind of type stuff, the kind of stuff that we do and that we talk about all the time. And the podcast itself was called, uh, the episode why you'll need data contracts with Chad Sanderson and, uh, uh, something like that. I, I apologize <laughs> and I won't do it again. Uh, and I'll get that uh, link in the show notes eventually. Uh, but anyway, uh, so the podcast was really interesting and uh, it wasn't anything like, you know, crazy deeper, you know, whatever. It just had some people uh, kind of talking about their experience with data contracts. And um, both of them were arguing for pushing schema left. And that phrase pushing left. That's something we've talked about several times. we talked about it with DevOps. Pushing DevOps basically means um, moving something uh, earlier into the process and um, early into the kind of design lifecycle and pipeline. Uh, Security, we talk about moving it left, starting with it. Uh, Schema, same thing. Starting with the schema, and not only in your development process, but also uh, in the data pipeline process. So when they say move your schema as far left as possible, they're talking about the producers of the data. So uh, ideally rather than having, like, your consumers of the data being in charge of saying, oh, um, you know, basically dealing with schema problems from different producers. So you can imagine, like, a website or something or a database, like, querying for the last couple events where uh, create date is greater than this or create date is null but insert date is greater than this or time is greater than this. Or, uh, basically, what I'm talking about is uh, having a bunch of in, uh, events with similar But not quite lined up schemas and it's a real pain to deal with it uh, on the client side because you can have more than one client right so you've got your website doing that and you've got these scheduled tasks doing that and now you've got a mobile app and these rules that you've kind of put in place to like deal with data integrity problems spread out and get worse over time and so one kind of common thought a couple years ago was like having this kind of translation layer having an api Uh, In place that would normalize all that into, you know, say, hey, time, create date and insert date. It's all the same thing. Let's all just move it into a new column called timestamp. And uh, that was all well and good. But um, to me, the kind of the revelation, the reason I'm talking about this podcast was they said, take it back as far as you can. If you can do this on the producer, if you can have them agree to a scheme up front, then it's going to save you so many problems. Um, And they talked a lot about nullability. Too and being able to have those rules as close to the producers of the events as possible, because uh, otherwise you're always messing with that layer and building all those crazy rules into that layer. And so if you can come up with like some sort of common schema, like uh, Elastic's got their ECS or Elastic Common Schema, and they're always trying to push vendors and just everyone into trying to fit your like security event data into this single format, uh, because it makes it so much easier for everything. To work downstream, not just your clients, but the entire pipeline, if it can rely on, you know, timestamps being in a certain format, certain fields not being null. So I thought I didn't really have a question there. I just thought it was interesting.
0: I I actually like that a lot. This is one of those things that I think it's ideal if you can do it, but you can't always do it, right? Like that's if if you're creating a new platform and. I mean, just just for kicks, let's say that you're going to create a, a podcast platform. You could pretty early know what kind of information that you'd want to be in your data, your API, your schema, right? Like it's it's a decently known um, sp- sphere of data that you can get out there. So I think that's pretty easy. It gets way more difficult when you're taking data from multiple sources, right? Like, so if you're producing the data, like you said, I think I think it's fantastic because at that point you can. can, It's like you said, oh man, how much time have we all spent on data errors in our careers, right? Like all of
1: it, (laughs) right? (laughs) As far as all of the significant time has been spent on that.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's it's a crazy amount of time. I remember, I mean, just something as simple as trying to load data from Excel into SQL Server. Um, as many times as I've done that, I can't tell you how much time I wasted on, oh, well, that data had line breaks, or this had this, or this. Like, if you could define that kind of stuff and the column names and all that up front and be like, hey, this is what you've got, you're going to have to use our API to even push data into this thing, then you're good. That would save a ton of time downstream. Um, so I love the idea, but when you start getting into things like unstructured data, or you're pulling from agnostic systems out there, right? Um, you're kind of at the mercy of it. As, as a matter of fact, one of the interesting things uh, we haven't talked about this stuff in probably a year or two now. Uh, but like the the Uber blog, when they were talking about creating their data lake and their data warehouses, one of their biggest problems was they get data in from all kinds of devices, all kinds of things. And it's exactly what you said, right? Like um, one set of data might have created time as the name of the field. Another set might be inserted time. Another one might be something else, right? Well, one of the biggest problems was to make that data useful for consumers of the data is they needed to normalize that. And, And like you said, doing it when it's coming in from a bunch of different places, that's a whole lot of data mapping and a whole lot of error-prone processes. Um, but the problem is, if you don't do it somewhere, then then you have this data lake that has a bunch of raw data that is almost impossible to use, right? Because it's you know you got it all, but what are you going to do with it now? So yeah, I, I love the idea of it. I love the idea of of moving moving the contracts left if you can.
1: Yeah, oh, the only kind of counterpoint I can think of there is that as a developer. It hurts me to not take all the data I get. So you can imagine you're like creating a you know a new producer for some sort of new device or something, and these are the four fields that you collect from the device. Ooh, but there's three that maybe someone find interesting someday. What do you mean I can't just pass those along because no one else has them? Like I, you know, I hate the idea that someday someone would come back and say, like, what do you mean you haven't been collecting, I don't know, temperature or something? Like that's it's producing it and now I want to use it. And you saying you haven't been collecting it because it didn't fit some stupid schema?
0: So, I mean, that, that is a very good argument against it, right? Like even the elastic common schema that you mentioned, which is sort of their um, security related schema, right? For, for uh, security events and that kind of stuff. If your bits of data don't map somewhere one-to-one in that, then it's exactly what you said. You almost have like this anxiety about, well, I don't want to just drop this on the floor. I want to cram it in somewhere and, And then things get nasty, right? Because I'm sure people would come up with all kinds of workarounds like, well, let's just have custom fields one through five or, or, or a custom collection where people can put whatever they want in it. And then, and then what you end up with is a half filled in schema because people didn't want to have to deal with mapping at all. And then they threw everything into the custom properties or or something like that. Right. Like, I mean, yeah,
1: yeah. It's tough. But hey, uh, there's a podcast. We'll have a link in here. You can check it out, listen to what they have to say about it, and uh, you know, think about it.
0: Excellent. All right. So I think it's that time of the show where where we beg for reviews. Um <laughs> and, and, oh, and it, family feud. Uh, I didn't prepare anything. Hey, we can't do it. There's only two of us, right? Like I mean That's right. That's yeah, right. we can't. Yeah, we can't. So th- there will be no game time. Um put it on the board or anything like that. Like <laughs> we're not gonna have it this time. Yep. Um, but we can ask you if you, if you haven't had the chance, you've been listening, you somewhat enjoy the podcast, you know, and, and you have a minute later, if you haven't already, please go to codingblocks.net slash review and click one of those links there and drop us a, a hello and, and leave us a, a rating on, I think we have audible and, and iTunes. I think we tried to do Spotify, but I don't really understand how that one works. So, yeah, um, at any rate, yeah. If we do love getting them, it really makes a smile, and it's really nice to know that you know these hundred ninety nine episodes, very short episodes that we've done, um, you know, are impacting people and 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 putting smiles on other people's faces. So yeah, indeed. <laughs> um, all right. So I had a couple here, and one sort of tailors or dovetails into what you were talking about earlier. But the first one I wanted to ask you is. We, we, so we're like I mentioned, we're 199 episodes into this thing now, right? And, and I don't think we set out to do this when we first started. I think like when we first started this podcast, we called it codingblocks.net because we were .net guys. And, and that's, that's sort of what we were going to do initially. And then we started realizing, hey, why, why tie us into just.net? Because most of the stuff that we want to talk about, is more about how to become a better software developer, not not how to become the best .NET developer. It was how to be a better one, right? And so, in that time, we sort of accidentally turned into a bit of a book club as well, right? Like, I don't. Again, we didn't plan to do this. It was like, hey, what's what's a good topic? Well, people are talking about clean code. Let's let's go look at it. Um. So, with that, what are of of the books that we've done? If you could name, let's say, a top three, and in, in, in order, what would have been your most impactful and, and why?
1: All right, I'll start with number one while I think about the rest, okay, <laughs> and that's designing data-intensive applications. And like you said, when like, when we started, we had a, like a kind of a na- more narrow focus. I mean, even if you look at the first couple episodes, it was very focused on, like, you know, like garbage collection and boxing and unboxing and interfaces and, and things that were very like kind of low level kind of, you know, like language constructs stuff. like very much like the kinds of things that you typed in order to make the, you know, compiler happy, whatever. Uh, you know, we probably argued about semicolons and or spaces, and, you know, whatever, but as we've grown, like, uh, you know, our careers changed and things we've been interested have changed and, you know, things have been and flowed. And so, uh, designing data intensive applications has been really good for, um, for basically the kind of stuff that has been plaguing me for the last couple of years, <laughs> just kind of more like, uh, I guess you could say like system design type problems and the kinds of things that I'm struggling with now. And I don't really think too much about like language features. And you know, I can't even tell you the version of Kotlin that's newest or what <laughs> got released in, because I don't really think about that stuff anymore. I'm sure there's nice stuff in it and I would probably be happier if I knew it, but that's just not where I'm spending my time. It's like the code has become the easy part and, the actual, like, data architecture and um, making things, like, resilient and logging and alerting and DevOps, like, all that stuff is, is just where I'm putting my time in now, and that's the stuff that I'm wrestling with, so that's, you know, what I've been kind of going after. I, I'm still working on what number two is. I'm kind of tempted to say the Git book, just because I learned some things there that I didn't Ooh. know, Ooh. but uh, I think there's some recency bias there. Um. So, I think I'm just not going to have a number two. Okay. All right. But number three, for the same reasons I kind of gave it above, is Clean Architecture. Uh, one of the Uncle Bob books where he kind of took some of the some things from Clean Code, which you know I still really enjoy, but it's just not really a, that applicable anymore, and kind of applied it to architecture and kind of pushing things out to the boundaries and kind of how to have things working together in a bigger system.
0: And uh, I, th- I think that's been a, a good one. Oh, okay. Second wait, 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 DevOps wait, wait. Handbook. Okay. The DevOps Handbook. Hey, before you say on the you said it's not applicable anymore. I think what you mean by that is you sort of got your coding habits because we've been doing it so long that that's not necessarily a book that you go back to anymore. So it didn't impact you as much in the past 10 years as it would have, you know, 20 years ago. Right.
1: Yeah. Like now if I open up a code file, I don't think like, oh my gosh, what was I thinking with these 10 lines or like, what does this function do? Like, I just don't like, yeah, I don't think that about my code. I don't really think that about other people's code. Now, what I do think is, oh, my gosh, why did I put this code over here when I should have put it over there in some other service or some other layer or some other kind of um, more architectural kind of you know, higher level system design thing? And so that's that's the kind of stuff that I'm thinking about. So less, less about variable names and more about, like, uh, you know, dependency injection and, you know, like the, the, using the right tools for the job than I am about, like, how many methods uh, or how many lines are in my
0: method or whatever. Yep, totally. And then oh, all right, so now go to your number two.
1: Oh yeah, DevOps Handbook. I just thought that was really good. Uh it's um it like there's it, I don't it's not my favorite book uh, by far, but it just I really needed it at the time, and so it was good to kinda have that influence. And so I'm gonna just go
0: with it. All right. Um I'm actually adding another thing that we'll talk about here in a minute. Oops. Uh because you said something that triggered it. Um all right so interestingly enough and i think this this speaks to just how how important and how good these books are so before you just put your list together we have two of the same in the same positions so for me designing data intensive applications is my number one also um and for the very reasons you said and and even more importantly so all the reasons you said, absolutely. And then on top of it, you don't realize like when when earlier in our careers, and I say earlier, I mean probably the first ten, fifteen years of our careers, you could almost say that the the relational database um kinda owned all your data storage, For right? Sure. Like, and and it wasn't until things like Google and Facebooks and these kind of things came up that you started looking at, Oh, well, there are different storage technologies that have to meet that have to exist to meet different needs. Right. And knowing about the different there's, there's data structures and data science that you need to know about, right? Your arrays, your, your objects, your structures, all that kind of, you need to know that stuff. But taking it like 10 steps further and knowing the different types of technologies that exist out there to answer different types of problems is so key. And that book does it in a way that is never dry. It's always an interesting read. And I can't say that about many technical books, right? And that's that's a big one for me. And then on top of it, to talk about how the storage behind the scenes for these various different things work, like SS tables and and dictionaries and all that kind of stuff and hashes and like when you start looking at it, you go, Oh, I get it, right? Like I understand why Rocksdb exists, right? Because you'd almost go, Well, why do you need that? I mean, you got you got a database server over here, and it's like, oh no, 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 no. This is answering a very specific problem. And and that's what that book did for me and continues to do for me. And and probably in this world where data reigns king. Um, you need to know that information. So that one, that one is number one for me. Um, the second one, man, I actually thought about DevOps handbook and, and it was impactful to me and opened my eyes to it. But I think the one that for me worked out really well was the imposter's handbook because there were a lot of things in that book. It, it taught things the way that I wish computer science in college had taught things. Um, and and that's saying a lot because I felt like in, in in college they would throw out a bunch of ideas. Um, you know, uh, there was the, uh, I can't, the bell Bellman Ford. Is that, is that it? Yeah. Um, i forget which one that was or Wyman Ford. I I can't even remember the name of it. There were all kinds of algorithms, right? Like the the, algorithms. Yeah. Graph algorithms, all that kind of stuff. And when you're in computer science, you don't really understand why you're going through a lot of that stuff, right? Because you're fairly new to it. You're like, who cares? (laughs) Like why? And when you come back to it, I guess, at least in the intention of the author who wrote this book was, Hey, you're somebody that's, that's out there writing software. Now you probably want to know what these things mean. And, and it puts it into a context that I think was really good for a lot of people to where you don't feel like you're lost when people start talking about big O notation and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so for me, I think that was one of the, the better reads, one of the better covers that we've gone over. Yeah. Yeah, totally. I forgot about that. Um, and so what, yeah, it has a been a minute. a
1: minute. I thought your number two was going to be D uh, DDD. <laughs> no, it's, no, the,
0: the vocabulary not. just, yeah. Yeah. Okay. You know what? In all honesty, DDD would have made my list and probably would have been pretty high on my list. Like maybe number two, if it hadn't been how hard of a read that book is. Yeah. I I mean, that book caused me to look up other books on the subject. Right. And that's, that's never a good sign, at least for me. Amazing, amazing concepts too thick to get through. And then the third one for me also was clean architecture. And it's again, what you said, it's, once you, once you learn how to program and you learn the ins and outs of your programming languages that you've chosen, and it doesn't even matter which ones they are. C sharp JavaScript, um, you know, Java, whatever pick, it doesn't matter. Once you've learned those and you know how to make methods and functions and you know how to put them together and make things make sense. It's then how do I piece this thing together to where it's not a ball of spaghetti anytime I go to run it, right? Oh, and now something else needs to use this library over here. How am I going to do that in an intelligent way? And I think that's where clean architecture sort of stitches all that stuff together that you probably learned over the years. But if you're working on smaller systems, you didn't have to think about it in that way. And I just really like that about that book. Yep. So, um, Yeah. So I thought it was really interesting that two of ours landed in the same spots on that list, because I mean, that just tells you how good those books are. Um, So hopefully if you haven't picked up either one of these, actually we should put links in the show notes here. I also have a link to our resources page. So if you are curious about any of these books that I just mentioned on our resources page itself, I have links to the various episodes to where we talked about different portions of the books and we've done. We've done a number of them on designing data intensive applications. It might be the only book we ever end up finishing. So <laughs> that, true. That that also says something. Next all
1: chapter, right. next section is on um which caught uh transactions.
0: Man, that's going to be big. That's going to be good. Um I I think you said that one was pretty dense too though. That was like a 40-pager, right? Yep. That's like 24 hours of material for us. Yeah. <laughs> um all right, so the next topic I had And this came from a conversation I had with somebody in Slack. So, um, I'm not advocating for everybody to reach out to us, to ask us, um, you know, personal advice on interviewing and, and things that they should ask or whatever. Um, but I'm also saying that we are there and there's a huge community in our Slack. We've, we've mentioned it before and, and I'm not kidding. If you haven't been there. Go to codingblocks.net slash slack and join because there truly are an amazing group of people that are on there all the time. Um somebody did reach out to me recently and asked me about questions that they should ask during an interview. And 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 so I gave some feedback um and tried to help and, and, and I'll give a little bit of information. I'm not gonna tell who it was or anything, but it was going to be working for um a company that was sort of in startup mode not not completely startup they'd already gotten a round of funding and and were doing some more stuff and so some of the questions i wanted to to throw his way and and you can attest to this too jay z is if you're ever working for a company that's sort of in growth mode um they take on investments right and that's that's called a series a b c d e right whatever um all the A, B, C, D is what number of funding they got. So if they've only had a series A, they've got an initial round of funding. If they got a B, then they've got a second round of funding. What's interesting about this is it's, it's, it's a double-edged sword, right? So the first side of this sword is, okay, they've got people interested enough in what you're trying to build to where they're willing to throw some money at it. That's really good right? That's, that's really good because now you have capital to be able to build this thing out. Um, if you start seeing a series B, then it's like, okay, well they're in growth mode. They're trying to hire, they're trying to build this thing out faster, which means they are taking on, you know, more costs to be able to do so. But this is where you have to start looking at it from somebody that's looking to take a job like this is, With every round that they come in, a lot of times when you come on, they're going to give you options in the company, right? And say, Hey, um, these options are worth 50 cents uh, if, if they vest, right. And, and if the company is worth $3 at the time that it all vests, then you just made $2 and 50 cents a share, right? It's, it's pretty awesome. Um, what happens though, as more series of funding come in that dilutes the pool, and it drops the value of the overall shares, right? And so your original 50 cents, if there was only ever a series A and it ended up going public, it could be worth a ton of money. If you get into a series D um, and all of a sudden there's you know uh, 500 million shares out there or something, then what, what you got at 50 cents, when it goes public, maybe the company's only worth 20 cents a share. And so you end up with nothing. So it's an interesting thing to think about um, just be aware of stuff like that. If you're looking for startups, there's a, uh, what is it? Is it Thompson's? I forget. There's, there's a, there's a website that you can look at that will actually give you information on, on companies.
1: Uh, is it the one that has the event every year?
0: Um, uh, I'm trying to, what's a good startup? What What was, uh, I can't think of any right now. Uh, what was I mean. it? What are any new
1: starts? Pitchbook.com. That's probably not what you're thinking now.
0: No, it's like Crunchbase. Is that what are thinking? Crunch will show some stuff too. Yeah. I think that's a good one, um, but they'll actually show you like how many series of investments there's been, how long it's been around, how much money was put in and, and that kind of stuff. So it's really good to do your, your research on that kind of thing. And then the last thing I want to say here is, and this goes back to d- designing data intensive applications and interviews in general, know before you go in what the company makes, right? So, so I mentioned like earlier in our careers, like everything revolved around the database, whether it was SQL server or Oracle or whatever, right? Like it was all the database. Well, if you were to go into an interview and they said, Hey, how would you design Twitter? And you start talking about, well, I'd put this table in, in the database. I'd probably design these, these five tables, and then we go from there and then and then they throw the question out there that, that Jay-z, I think brought up initially on this podcast a while back is the celebrity problem with Twitter, right? Um, well, what do you do now when a celebrity puts a post out there and now there's 10 million people that need their their timelines updated? How do you design that? And if all you've ever looked at are relational databases, you're kinda of gonna be stumped because honestly, I mean, Jay-Z, can you think of a good way to design that in a in a relational database? No. <laughs> no, I, I mean
1: Well, the only thing I think of is like kind of rendering out. So basically when someone makes a post or something, just like spit that stuff out so that it's ready for consumption. But
0: uh not really. <laughs> right. In, in, and even then rendering it out. So let, let's say that, that the only thing, the only tool that you're, that you're thinking about when you're in this interview is, is your SQL server or whatever. Well, you get this message in from Taylor Swift and now you're going to have to go pre-render. Um, you know, I don't know how many followers she has hundred million. I, I don't know. Yeah. A few, um, you're going to have to go write a hundred million records out. But this thing needs to show up in everybody's timeline pretty quick, like you have a problem, so that's why I say something like data designing data intensive applications is so eye opening because you start looking at things and going, "Oh, wait a second, Twitter actually built their own storage engine because they needed to answer this problem right um and there are different type of indexes and there's different types of storage systems out there. You have search engines like Elasticsearch, you have RDBMSs, you have um, uh, columnar storage indexing, you have key value pair. It, it, like there's all kinds of different ways to do this and you have to learn that, hey, you need different tools for the job, right? Like if if you're used to the world where somebody types something on a website and then it's just calling an API that calls directly to the database and writes it, you're probably not going to be able to answer a scale question very well, because that's, you know, they're going to be like, well, what if the database is unavailable? Um, I, I don't know. Right. So, so I say all that to say, look at what the company is creating. What is their product? If you're going into interview, what are they building so that you can at least Go in and and figure out what it is you need to know before you even go into the interview. You know what I mean?
1: Yep. And uh, also, I think if you're going into you know a riskier startup and, and you're not sure of uh, you know what the long term is going to be there, uh, you've got to think about like what you need to do to make your family or you know like whatever life resilient to those kind of uh, dynamic changes because it could blow up in a good way or a bad way. Uh, either way. And so you just uh, you know, have to be ready for that. And it's good to do that at a time in your life that you can take that sort of risk. And so,
0: you know, uh, if you end up doing that, I hope it works out for you. Yeah. But also, I guess on that same front, right, if you're going into a riskier situation, you should be compensated um, for that. Right. Like it, it, there's a difference between going and working for a company like Microsoft that's been around for a while or Amazon or whatever, and somebody that's just come come up off of, uh, you know, the newest startup fad out there. And you should probably get paid a little bit more in upfront compensation, you know, meaning your salary than if you went to one of these more stable jobs. Like uh, we've talked about the the big ones out there. Like they usually load you up with stock to try and force you to stay around with the golden handcuffs for a while. Whereas the startup is probably going to pay you more cash in your salary because they know they're a riskier investment, right?
1: Yep, and if they don't have salary, you better be getting a lot of you know options or stock or you know something,
0: yeah, something to make it worth it. So yeah, know that going in. Um, all right, and then the last thing I got here is we've talked about this, man. The hammer and the nail. Um, <laughs> when, when you have a hammer, everything looks like a nail. We, we've talked about this. Like you've got a cabinet hanging on the wall. Um, all you got's a hammer. Well, you're just going to start hitting that cabinet until the the screws break, (laughs) and pull it out. Right. Like that's what you're going to do. Um, may not be the most effective way to do it. You'll probably get it done eventually, but it wasn't going to be pretty. Be careful about that. Um, we as developers have a tendency to fall in love with whatever new thing that we're doing, right. Um, and it's not a bad thing. It's a good way to, to really learn the limits of of a technology. So I mean, we talked about this, man, it's probably been three years ago now, I guess. I don't know. Um, when we were talking about Elasticsearch a lot, right? Oh yeah. And it's like episode 80 ish. Was it really? Man, it's been a while. Man, yeah, been Outlaw would know. Yeah, yeah, Outlaw would know. Um but I I say this because it's easy when you've been frustrated by another tech stack that you want to go all in on another one right? So, so the relational database that you were using and abusing the wrong way has been failing you. So now you want to go all in on Elasticsearch, right? And, and then you find out, well, you can't do joins over there. Um, Well, (laughs) we'll figure something out, right? And hopefully you will. (laughs) Right. Hopefully you will. Maybe you Uh, won't. So I just say that to say, and and it's driven home in designing data-intensive applications a lot throughout that book is you can't be afraid to duplicate data because different storage engines exist for different reasons, right? So, if you are using something like an Elasticsearch or a Solar, it's because it has that index that you can search differently than if you are using something like a SQL Server. Um, if you're, if you need something that deals with tons of relationships, then maybe you need to be looking at a graph database, right? If, if you are looking for, um, analytic type stuff, then maybe you need to be looking at a Pino or a Druid or something like that. Clickhouse Isn't that another one of them? But don't fall into the trap that, oh, well, we have the data over here in, in clickhouse now we can put everything there right um or it's all in elastic search we can put it all there and it's like wait a second but now you can't do your joins or now uh you can't update things properly because this isn't supposed to be a mutable set of data like don't don't be so quick to jump all in and throw away what you do know and what you do have working Um, Just because you have something else that's answering a very specific problem very nicely. You have any thoughts on any of that?
1: Uh, The only thing I would add there is that uh, it's gotten so much easier to add technologies that it gives you a chance to experiment, um, you know, like things like Docker Compose or like if you're working Kubernetes or just containerization in general, like makes it easy to uh, and cheap to experiment. So, uh, you know, that's that's a good good thing to have in your back pocket if you're not familiar with that stuff i definitely recommend it um, I think we talked about this a couple weeks ago too where um, there's you know, sometimes when things get popular there's like a backlash you know like the Nickelback problem or whatever or like, uh, like the more popular something gets the, like the, the more critical the critics get the, the haters gonna hate right so, so the- I think sometimes like I'll see like backlash against like containers or you know kubernetes or docker just because it's you know complicated and people it doesn't solve you know their particular needs which is you know flat they're entitled to that opinion but even if you don't like it even if it's frustrating even if you don't think it's useful to you uh it's a tool <laughs> don't <laughs> neglect it and uh it yeah it's it's so powerful it, just in terms of experimentation if you, even if you don't use it for production that it's it's worth getting into so that's a total total other tangent there but just wanted to say that uh, you can, you can experiment with things and see how you like them, And uh, you know, you don't have to fully commit to something before you, you know, try it, like do a little bake off or something and uh, you know, like try out a screwdriver once in a a while. It's,
0: it's interesting you say that because I mean, we both, we both teetered on, on either side of this, right? Like I don't want to add another piece to my stack and it's like, well, but I don't want to write my own piece of this either. And it, it becomes difficult, right? Like, where, where's the line? And that's something you have to feel out. There is no right or wrong answer to it. Yeah. Um, totally. There's been times when I've been like wrestling with some piece of technology. I'm like, oh man,
1: I, I hate this, this thing this open source tool or this service, whatever. Like all I do is spend time like configuring it and trying to figure out why it doesn't work and, uh, you know, dealing with problems and like reading its stocks and stuff. And like, it seems like a real drag on your time, but then you have to remember that if you had written your own thing, that not only would you have that development time there, you also would have had trouble configuring it and deploying it and figure out why it's not working. And good luck with documentation. Right. right. So there will uh, be you know, none. <laughs> it's easy to. It's kind of like think about the things that you're missing out of when you're using some other tool, and it's easy to forget about all the time you would have uh, you had you know
0: spent in not fun ways had you built something custom. Yeah. Totally. All right. So one one last bonus question for this for this episode. Um, what would you say is we we did the books like what was the most impactful book what is the most impactful technology that you've used or that that has come into your view in the past several years
1: i definitely kubernetes
0: kubernetes yeah i was curious whether you'd say kubernetes or docker
1: yeah docker docker's in there but um docker there's some alternatives you know and like Mm. aside from mining a docker file like i don't really use it that much you know like I'm kind of abstracted from it. It's definitely there. It's core to my everyday experience. Uh, Every blood sucking day,
0: (laughs) but but I still really enjoy it. You know what? I think, uh, I think I would probably be right there with you. I think that, that Kubernetes is the thing. Like once you, once you dip your toe in a Docker, then, then you start going, Oh man, this is amazing. And then you get into Docker Compose, and you're like, "Oh, this is the greatest thing since sliced cheese, right? Um, I guess bread's the right way to say that, but cheese is better. We all yep. know it." Um, but it's not until you get to the, I mean, theoretically hands off capability of Kubernetes that you're like, "Oh, this is how it's supposed to be, right?" Yeah. And, and I think for that reason, I'm there with you. Now there is. I feel I feel like you can become reasonably proficient with Docker in maybe a month. Yeah. I don't think that's possible with Kubernetes. <laughs> no. <laughs> no,
1: I still like I still feel like a baby. I feel like you know kindergarten. There's so much stuff I don't know. Yeah, it's crazy. And then yeah. you start thinking about extensions and all the plugins and just like it seems like every day I'm hearing about some new tool that people have been using for 5 years that I've never even heard of that is
0: like so amazing and so great. Yeah. It's, it's pretty, pretty crazy how big that, that, um, world is, but yeah, I think too, I would also be in the Kubernetes, um, camp for what the most impactful is. All right. So I think that was it for, uh, for the meat of this episode. So that brings us to what is typically my favorite part of the episode. And that is the tip of the week. All right. And so I've got
1: another Obsidian uh, tip here. And if you don't recall, uh, Obsidian is a note taking app that's all based on Markdown. You can run it just locally on Markdown files. And it's got really nice tools for like interlinking. And it, it's just a nice interface and, and involves searching and other things. Uh, it's really nice. And uh, it's also got some features you can pay for to kind of give you like, you know, mobile syncing and some other, you know, kind of nice to haves, whatever. Um, but one thing I don't know if I mentioned before. Is that it has a command palette? It's kind of in the way that VS Code does, where you can hit Command P. It's even the same shortcut, and uh, and start typing what you want to do. So if you want to like edit settings, don't go looking around in the UI. Command P and start typing settings. Uh, earlier today, I realized I didn't know how to do strike through in Markdown. I just not something I do often. Well, I just did Command P and started typing strike through. Oh, oh, hey, there we go. Uh, so it's really nice. Um, for features that, you know, exist, but you're not really quite sure how to do it. Just start typing. You know, it was like VS code. Like now nah, I don't want to use anything that doesn't have a command palette. I remember CodingBox sponsor a uh, shortcut. That was like part of the whole big thing, you know, with, uh, was like, um, you know, the ticket management system that had a command pod, so You could do like shortcuts and stuff like again. It's so, so nice
0: just to be able to kind of think what you want and then be there like a half second later. Dude, that's amazing. I did not know that existed. I mean, just earlier today, which by the way, I don't remember who it was that recommended Obsidian, but, um, we should give a shout out again to whoever it was, because I know you use, you use it to death. Yeah. I I'm use it either. a lot. It's amazing. Um, but I had a website open with Markdown, um, a cheat sheet or something earlier today because yep. I couldn't remember how to do something. And if I would known that I yep. could have stayed within the, within the tool. Yeah. It's really nice. Oh, that's killer! All right, so for me, I'm I'm actually stealing some from some people on our Slack channel, which again, our codingblocks.net slash Slack is amazing. Um, so from Aaron Jesky, hey, it's Double A. Uh, he mentioned the Ghostery plugin for Firefox. Now, he mentioned there's something coming up in Chrome, and I didn't I didn't actually read exactly what, or I didn't see what he meant by it, but. There's some sort of privacy thing coming in Chrome that he didn't like, and so he switched over to Firefox. And he mentioned the Ghostery plugin because not only will this thing block ads and all that kind of stuff, it'll also block those super irritating cookie settings things that oh pop up on every site on the internet now. too you know many times I've accepted just Stack Overflow alone? You can't escape it, man that site stack overflow stack exchange I'm like why can you not remember what I just did two tabs ago yeah. like I don't I don't get it so that looks pretty amazing to have a link to that for the uh, Mozilla plugin or the Firefox plugin and then this one dude this one's amazing so you gotta click this link down here so this is from Scott harden also in our in our tips and and tools slack channel it's fake update.net. So <laughs> if you ever, me for a second, now. man, I swear to you, if you ever want to screw with somebody, this is assuming you're in the office with, with, with people, right? You yeah. can take their, their browser and go to this fake And he has a link to the win 10, uh, upgrade. You open this thing up and it's got this working on updates thing with the windows and F 11, that baby and put it in full screen. And I promise you, <laughs> oh my gosh, that is amazing. That is that is absolutely phenomenal. And and I want to say that uh Jamie even said he did it to somebody and they they looked up and they saw it was, they made it to like 147% and they were like wait a second yeah nice (laughs) (laughs) so so this thing does i don't know how frequently it jumps a percent but it's definitely some interval of time so yeah yeah if you really if you really want to mess with somebody just just load this up on the screen and put it in full screen that's amazing your pc will restart several times you're like oh man man it's so good um Oh, and, and one other thing. So uh, my uncle, he got two new dogs, Timex and Rolex. Um, they're his watchdogs. <laughs> nice, nice. Oh, man, that's good. Is that Micro G? That is Micro G, yes. Nice. <laughs> nice. That's awesome. Oh, so beautiful. Um, all right. So that, that is our dad joke of the episode. I don't think my son gave me any this week, so we'll have to go with that one. All right. Well, I guess we can just call it here then. Yeah, how about that? I think we're in under an hour and 30. This might be the shortest episode of the past five years. Yep. All right. Well, now I
1: I guess we can say uh, who causes the uh, show length, right?
0: Yeah, (laughs) Yeah, that's it. The outlaw. All right. So we got to do our outro here. Yeah. All right. So
1: uh, subscribe to us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and more using your favorite podcast app. Hey,
0: and be sure to head over to codingblocks.net slash review and leave us a review if you haven't had the opportunity. Hey, and while you're up there at codingblocks.net, check out our show notes, examples, discussions, and more, and send your feedback, questions, and rant to the Slack channel.
1: All right, and make sure to follow us on Twitter uh, at codingblocks, or head over to Coding Blocks, and find all our social links at the t- uh, top of the page. And maybe by the time you're hearing this, uh, we'll have one of those uh, fancy blue check marks
0: finally. I don't know. Ooh. Yeah could do that we'd be ballers yeah eight bucks a month verified coding blocks that's right